I used to play in the sand in Caesarea Maritima when I was growing up. We'd run up and down the sand dunes and basically had a great time of it. One of the things we liked to do is that when someone was standing looking up at the top of the sand dune, we would begin to dig below the person and the sand would begin to shift underneath their feet. If they weren't paying attention, eventually they would find themselves in a hole with the sand drifting between their toes. They would sometimes fall, which was the best because they simply wouldn't have any solid ground beneath them anymore. At times it feels like the ground beneath us is shifting, it's changing and it's sliding away. It feels like we're living in Florida, right? The only place that I know that has sinkholes as real and present danger. But what do we do when the future feels like a sinkhole? How do we gain that ground back? When we're sitting in our homes, most of us still under a shelter in place order with those of us here, at least in California, without a date when this might even end. And with all of us even having to make the decision of whether or not to enforce our own shelter in place orders to protect our families. I mean, how can we gain back ground that we feel like we've lost over the last few weeks and now months? How can we look into the unknown and not fear? How can we find an anchor point in this undulating water we seem to be living in? How can we not fear for the future? The truth is we Christians should never have a fear for the future. The future for us, it's just punctuation. That's all it is. We don't have to fear for the future because the future has already been decided. Not so much the micro future. I mean, we still have a hand in creating that. But the macro future, the end result, oh, that's done. I don't worry about that anymore. I've got this shirt that I was wearing when I was writing this, and it simply says that the future is not a threat. And this is why we refuse to be fearful in the face of everything that is going on. We do things like holding the line of hope, figuring out how we reach out to others, creating systems of connection so everyone can stay in community. We do this because we're not afraid. I mean, do you remember being afraid of the dark? We all went through it. I mean, most of us went through it when we were little, but some of us did it when we were a little bit older. The reason we were afraid of the dark is because we don't know what's in the dark. Were there monsters, killers, child stealers, or simply Legos to hurt your feet on because you didn't clean your room? Fear of the dark really is fear of the unknown. Fear of the future is not simply a lack of faith. That's too easy and it creates too much blame. Fear at its essence is the unknown. Anxiety at its essence is fear of the unknown. And we live in unknowable times. There's so much information, so many who say they know exactly what's happening. It's amazing that both the left and the right know exactly what's going on, only to be outdone by the conspiracy theorists and those who would pander to our basest fears. And that creates anxiety in us. I mean, how come I don't know everything that everyone else does? Even this creates a feeling of fear and anxiety in us. Why do so many people know all this stuff that I don't know? Haven't I been paying attention? The constant news cycle and the constant contradictions held by those news cycles are breathtaking in their scope. I mean, we have to forge for truth in the assurance of the disaster that everyone says is coming. Welcome to the end of time, folks. It's a dark jungle out there. So what do we do? Some of us will go and purchase protection of one sort or another. Some of us will hunker down and refuse to know anything, peeking our heads out of our houses like Punxsutawney Phil waiting to see if spring has sprung. Some of us are going to search for new ways to help. 
And some of us are going to simply pray that this will all be over soon. But one thing is clear. We all have ways of coping with what we're going through. Some of them are helpful, some of them are hopeful, and some of them are even harmful. But I want you to know something. In the face of all of this, believing in Christ is an act of defiance. That's right, defiance. Why defiance, you say? Because it means that our paradigm, our rubric for decision-making, and our worldview is not like everyone else that we might meet. We have met the end of all things in Scripture, and we have recognized that it ends well. We have looked our fears in the face and recognized them to be ugly but toothless, frightening but faithless, harsh but hardly worth our time. But hey, listen, getting to the end of all things is going to be quite a wild ride. There's wars, there's rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, famines, and the lot. None of which is fun, none of which is comfortable or easy, and none of which will break our faith in Jesus. There will be scarcity before abundance. There will be pain before His presence. And there is hardship before safe harbor. We know this to be true. But are we living just in the former rather than the latter? The grand narrative is not aborted in the middle, so we don't know what's happening at the end. We understand. In apocalyptic times, many churches, especially from our faith tradition, they go to our two favorite conversations, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. We go there to interpret the signs, endeavor to demystify the mystery that is God, and find hope in the metaphors placed in them. Now, this is good, this is right, this is true. And at times, it can be a bit confusing. It can also ramp up our eschatological anxiety. But the worst thing it can do, and this is not where it always lands, but sometimes, it points us back to us and what we are going to experience rather than pointing to God. Which, by the way, is the whole point of the book of Revelation to begin with, right? A revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so where do we go when things might get a little confusing? Where do we go when the troubles and the trials seem to have the upper hand in our lives? What do we do when we see good people die, find the end of their own age, and we wonder what is next for them and for us? Remember, everyone will live through end times. Even if it's just the end of time for them, everyone will experience looking into the dark of an uncertain and unknown future and feel the fear of the dark. This is the human condition. In times like these, it feels even more acute. However, we seek the peace that comes from knowing a God that transcends death, transcends pandemic, upheaval, economic strife, and even anxiety. So I'm going to start with the ending of this little pericope, this little passage for today. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, but I'm starting on verse 18 because it says this, so encourage each other with these words. The words we're going to take a look at are meant to be something that encourages one another. In fact, I would argue that all the words we find in Scripture are meant to teach, encourage, and bless, and these words are no different. Paul, who at times has hard words to say, is also a huge fan of encouragement as well. It seems that he believes that we, as Christians, must use our words to encourage one another in the times that are good and in the times that are bad. If we would say it biblically, we would say in season and out of season. 
But what words is he talking about? So let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It begins like this in verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. So the breakdown is simply this. We do not want you not to know. In other words, let's, that's negative, right? Let's flip it around. We want you to know. Now listen, sometimes a mystery is just a mystery because we don't ask the right questions. Paul wants the Thessalonians, and so he also wants us to know what happens when someone dies and how Jesus is going to come back. And, and you got to understand the assumption here, right? The assumption is that Jesus will come back. In the early years of the church, this was just simply taken for granted. In fact, I've often wondered if they took so long to write things down because they just assumed Jesus was heading back before too long. As they looked around and saw their friends were dying, and in not such great ways, they must have felt an urgency finally to write it down, what they knew to be true about Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven. It must have been disappointing to have to write it down, realizing they might not see Jesus come again in their lifetimes, but thank goodness they did. And with that writing came the assumption that Jesus was coming back. Of course He was. He went to prepare a place for us, so why wouldn't He come back? Jesus is certainly a man of His word, and we can count on that word. We go directly to the how now, don't we? But maybe we should linger in the why a little bit longer. While it's interesting to ask how all this is going to work, and Paul talks about it, the why question is ultimately more interesting. Why is he coming back? Well, John 14, 3 tells us that he's going to prepare a place for us and then to come back to get us so that we might be with him and he with us. So the why is because he loves us so much that he's willing to dwell with us, abide with us, and be with us. Do you remember that book that talked about your love languages? Do you, do you remember being asked that question often? You probably know what your love language was. Well, Jesus' love language is two things. Number one, it's time. The Sabbath taught us that. Number two, it's proximity. His incarnation taught us that. So Jesus says he's going to come back to be with us and to be with us forever. And for Paul, these statements are just simple logic statements. He's telling them the how, but it's almost as if he is like, well, this is how he left, so this is going to be how he returns. In verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that, that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Resurrection is a fact, as is the second coming. And if you doubt it, Paul makes this logic statement that should solve our issues. For Paul, this doesn't seem like such a stretch because the assumption is that this has been done before, and all power now resides in Jesus as well as the Father. All that the Father is, is in Jesus. So the power of resurrection, resurrection power, as we say, it's not a surprise. It's not even a stretch for Jesus or for Paul to believe it and teach it. We say the only thing that we can depend on is death and taxes, right? And for Paul, the only thing you can depend on is death and resurrection. It's a fact. Don't be fooled, though. The how is secondary to the why. Verse 15, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. And he speaks about a word from the Lord, right? We didn't hear Jesus say this, but this must have come to Paul. Those who are alive will not go before those who have died first. And allow me a little bit of musing here. What will it be like? 
what will it be like to see our family who has gone before us move up to Jesus? That's hope. The very scope of the spectacle gives me goosebumps. We don't want to muse on this because of the fantastic nature of this thinking, right? In fact, the most rational among us will not allow themselves in their minds to go there because it's too dangerous. But you see, our hope in Jesus does not disappoint, so we can hope about this. Paul has told us this before as it relates to our suffering, right? Romans 5, 5. And this hope, he says, will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love so we can be allowed to hope for our hope is in Jesus and it will not disappoint at the end of all things. And for Paul, it's explicit. And then he tells us how things work. In verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. So first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. So Jesus is coming and we will all know. This commanding shout is something that we would have heard in a time of war, declaring the coming of the angel armies, as well as the coming victory. The voice of the archangel means that there's a heavenly host along with Jesus. Have you ever seen somebody who says they're the second coming of Christ? It's amazing people still believe in these guys. Because here it says that you won't miss it. There will be no question about whether he comes. In other words, if you're not sure if Jesus came, he didn't, because you'll know. Verse 17, then together with them, those who will remain on the earth will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. In this statement, there are logistics, right? Being caught up, but I'm not so interested in that, honestly. Then we will be with the Lord forever. That's what I'm interested in. I have lots of words, but I think I might stop there because I don't think my words make as much sense as a song I heard Josh Estrada sing one time. And so I've asked him to sing it again. So if you will, indulge me. Let's hear from Josh. See the world is love of Jesus Sing His mercy and His grace In the mountains by the blessed He'll prepare for us a place When we all get to Rejoicing that will be when we Streets of gold when we 
to get to heaven. But we're not done with the text yet. The text ends like this, and we heard it right at the beginning. So encourage each other with these words. Listen, we're struggling. We're tired. We're impatient. What was novel is not so novel anymore. We're exhausted from our Zoom conversations. We're ready for this to be over. We want our lives back. We want to come out of our houses and go back to the way things were. But perhaps our words of encouragement should not be so much Let's get back to the way things were before. Perhaps our words of encouragement should be that we will move more powerfully toward the kingdom come. We will await the day when things are made right, made new, and not made old. These words from Paul are not to give us a peace in the waiting, but to enrich our hearts and pull at our spirits to be uncomfortable here, to look forward to that day. We can come out of our graves that we call our houses right now, that we've been living in for the last few months, or we can look forward to the greater revealing, a greater kingdom, and the greater commencement of that kingdom on earth. I also get that some of us may be disappointed because we're not talking about the signs of the end. But the truth is we actually did talk about the signs of the end. It can be summed up in the idea that Jesus is coming back and there will be time given to us and proximity allowed to us. Time and proximity, that's what Jesus wants. That's his love language. Do not waste what is being given because you have time and proximity with your family right now. Your ideal is not God's ideal. You may have to build a kingdom in your home today. And when those doors open again, you may have to let that kingdom spill out into your community because of the time and proximity and love you have experienced with Jesus and with one another through this time. Don't waste this time. Wade in this time. 
Maybe Jesus is teaching us about the love language of time and proximity. It says he will come back for us and we will be with him forever. Maybe right now we can be with our families and we can experience the love of Jesus. And when those doors opened up, when that resurrection happens at the end of this time, we can go into the world with a greater and more powerful understanding of who Jesus is and how the world needs him. We are believing in an act of defiance by believing in Jesus. We will not fall into the traps of thinking like the world thinks. We can't because God has given us a greater trajectory, a greater hope, and a greater power than that. It is resurrection power. It is coming, friends, even though it feels like we're stuck in the grave. Paul took it as an assumption Jesus is coming back. Take it as an assumption we will be resurrected from our homes and we will move back into the world to express the kingdom of God in a more powerful and a more palpable way. Let's pray today. God of grace, Lord of mercy, may we at once have a sense of peace with what we're going through, but at the same time, Lord, may we anticipate that you will be coming again and that you will resurrect us again. Whether it's at the end of all time or the end of this time, Lord, we can take what we have read and encourage one another with it. So let us do that. Let us do that today, Lord. Accept our worship, accept our praise, accept our hope, and don't let it disappoint. In your name I pray.